Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is April the 30th, uh, 2023, a Sunday, the last day in April. About a year ago, we did an interesting show with uh, a man called Christian Bush on the serendipity of good luck. I think Bush believes that um, we can control our good fortune. He had a book out, Connect the Dots, The Art and Science of Creating Good Luck. It's a uh, it's a very much a, a, a Silicon Valley assumption that we can even manage good luck. But the notion of managing good luck, of being in charge of our fortune rather than that fortune being in charge of us, goes against most of the wisdom uh, uh, of our history. The idea of fortune favoring the brave was something that the, the Romans uh, imagined, uh, Plinius the younger suggested that the idea of fortune favoring the brave uh, was articulated uh, by uh, his uncle, Pliny the Elder. We remember Pliny the Younger and Pliny the Elder now because they are the names of famous beers in the United States. Mm -hmm. Machiavelli um, also had some very um, intriguing thoughts on how we master luck. He imagined luck being like a woman uh, and it needed to be mastered, perhaps in a violent way. Uh, but not everyone thinks that we can master luck. Most of us assume that luck masters us. The great 20th century American political philosopher John Rawls believed that luck was the thing that, in a sense, perhaps equalized us, rich and poor, successful and uh, failure, black and white, male and female, were all, in the sense, in... Uh, as uh, as vulnerable to both good and bad luck. He put this stuff together in his great book, A Theory of Justice, in which he assumed from his original position, what he called his veil of ignorance, that since we never quite know how lucky or unlucky uh, we want to be in political terms, we should be forming a contract that protects us, perhaps, from bad luck. Uh, this Rawlsian idea of justice has been um, reinvigorated or reinterpreted by my guest today, Daniel Chandler. He has a new book out, Free and Equal, What Would a Fair Society Look Like? He's a young academic uh, in, the United, uh, in the United Kingdom, a policy guy as well. He's associated with London School of Economics. The book is already a big hit in the United Kingdom, coming with great uh, blurbs from people like Zadie Smith. And I'm thrilled that um, Daniel is joining us from Norfolk. He normally lives in London. Uh, Daniel, is my introduction about uh, a rules fair, is the heart of his politi political philosophy one about not knowing how we can really master luck, good fortune or bad fortune? Mm. Well, Thank you for having me on the show. And uh, yeah, I think that a recognition of the incredibly important role that luck plays in each of our lives is at the heart of Rawls's philosophy. And the, the thought experiment that you uh, mentioned earlier, this 
what he what Rawls calls the original position uh, is Rawls's uh, a way of thinking through the idea of fairness, how we can. So, you know, I think Rawls recognizes that luck is something that affects all of us in our lives. And there's nothing, in a sense, there's nothing just or unjust about the fact that some people are lucky and others aren't. That's just, that's just the fact of life. But Rawls, what's just or unjust or what's fair or unfair from a political perspective is how we as a society respond to the fact that some people are luckier than others. You know, some people are born with uh, talents that are valued in the market right now and others aren't. And that thought experiment is a way of thinking through how it is that we should as a society respond to the, the sort of the fact of luck uh, and how the role that that plays in all of our lives. So, you know, this idea is that if we want to know what a truly fair society would look like, we should imagine how it is that we would try to, how it is that we would organize that society if we didn't know which person we would be, whether we were rich or poor, black or white, gay or straight. And I guess that thought experiment is a way of helping each of us to step back from our own circumstances and take a more impartial perspective on, on how it is we might going, go about organizing society. And you know what's exciting about Rawls is that he uses this quite abstract, but I think very powerful and intuitive thought experiment to derive a set of principles that are actually a very practical toolkit for thinking about how we could go about organizing society. So Rawls has three principles, one to do with freedom. Well, really often it's described as two. There's a freedom and an equality principle that are- And really that of course is why your book is called exactly. Free and Equal. Exactly, so the title reflects these core principles of freedom and equality that are meant to, those principles move us beyond just the very sort of vague uh, vague talk about freedom and equality towards specifying exactly which freedoms are really important, how much equality should we be aiming for as a society, and how can these things fit together. And then alongside the, the freedom and equality principles, there's also a further sustainability principle, which Rawls didn't elaborate on as much in his lifetime, but I think is really critical for making his theory relevant today. And, you know, my book as both an economist and a philosopher, what I've tried to do is really show how these principles can help us think through so many of the challenges that we face today and, and specifically develop solutions to those challenges. The book is a very, you know, it's meant to be a constructive contribution rather than just a critical one, one that, a book that sort of sets out uh, a practical agenda that we could really put into practice across quite a wide range of areas. I want to get to those practical um aspects of, of both rules and of your reinterpretation of rules uh, later, Daniel. But mm -hmm. Rawls is a very intriguing philosopher, political philosopher, very controversial, very provocative, I guess is the best way of thinking about it. You suggest or he, he suggests that we are all rational and if we could be reasonable, we would understand that ill fortune could affect us uh, as 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 possibly as anybody else, as our neighbor. How far back does he go? Because how can we, it, it, does he suggest that we sort of reason almost from the womb? Because once we come out, our good or bad fortune in terms of our socioeconomic status, our gender, uh, the color of our skin, all that becomes fairly self-evident. Mm. So I think, what rules? So yeah, I think you're right. The heart of Rawls's conception of human nature is that we all have two basic capacity, capacities: a capacity for rationality, for thinking about what it is we want from life and how to go about achieving it, and then a capacity to be reasonable, to 
to a, a desire to live with other people on terms that everybody can accept as fair. And I think particularly on the, the second, on our, on our capacity to be reasonable, I think Rawls recognizes that that capacity is a product of our, of our circumstances. It's something, you know, it maybe has uh, evolutionary roots in our psychology, but it's also very significantly shaped by our experiences when we're young. And in fact, there's a, there's a big part of Rawls's great book. So his, his sort of magnum opus was called A Theory of Justice, and that was published in 1971. And uh, there's, I think, the third part of that book has quite a substantial discussion of moral psychology and how it is that we might... Um, how it is that humans might develop this capacity for reasonableness, first through interactions with parents, then through interactions with a wider community. And so, you know, there's, there is a sort of, there's a sophisticated account of human psychology and development that actually is sort of hidden in the theory that I think has often been overlooked. I think people often go straight to the thought experiment that we've discussed and sometimes suggest that this idea that we should imagine society as if we didn't know who we were, suggests a kind of model of uh, of humans that sort of stripped of uh, of of all of our normal psychology, and I think that's that's uh, that's that's not fair. And you know, Rawls has a realistic account of human psychology, and that thought experiment is not meant to represent the way that we go about thinking in our daily lives. It's a thought experiment to help us with. Is there a, a sort of a Rawlsian analysis of Rawlsianism? Why is it that this way of thinking, his veil of ignorance, mm -hmm. um, his theory of justice, attracts people like yourself? You studied at Harvard, people living in Mass Cambridge, Massachusetts, and North mm -hmm. London and New York, the coastal elites. What is it about this idea that makes rules so popular i wonder whether mm -hmm. there's it, it can be used almost to to kill two birds with one stone it, it it's rooted in rationality and reason and our self-interest but it results in if not socialism certainly a more egalitarian world is that fair yeah, I think it is fair to say that it would result in a in a much more egalitarian world. I think just, I mean, going back to who these ideas appeal to, I think part of what's attractive about them is that they can appeal actually to a very wide range of people and not just, I suppose, not just people with a what you might think of as a conventionally liberal cultural outlook. And I think Rawls, more than almost any other thinker in the liberal philosophical tradition, was very it was very important to him to articulate a philosophy that could appeal to people with a very wide range of moral and religious views. So he was very keen to show how people who held socially conservative religious beliefs could also sign up to his principles of justice. So, you know, I, I think it's not the case at the moment that I don't think these ideas have necessarily reached those people in the way that they could have. But I think there is a potential in Rawls's ideas to articulate a philosophy that would you know, it's both a, a genuinely unifying alternative to what lots of people refer to as identity politics and also an account of liberalism that can reach across some of the cultural and religious divides that have become so important both in America and in the UK. Um, so so I think there's, you know, there's two aspects to Rawls's theory. There's, there's the liberalism of his theory, and I think he articulates a liberalism that can accommodate 
social conservatives and you know people with a very wide range of moral religious views and then there's the the, the egalitarianism of his philosophy the idea that we should reorganize our economic institutions to achieve well so in fact maybe i should step back and just spell out the the principles since we haven't touched on them so yeah exactly i was gonna because that's i mean what's so that. exciting about rules is you get this this set of three principles that are really a framework for thinking through a whole range of more specific problems. So maybe if I just set them out, then everyone will have in their head uh, a sense of what that framework is. So Rawls's first principle is called the basic liberties principle. And it's the idea that there are certain fundamental freedoms that in a sense, the first priority of the state should be to protect those freedoms. So those include the personal freedoms like freedom of religion, freedom of speech, freedom of uh, sexuality, basically the freedoms that we need to live our own life according to our own beliefs. Um, so the personal freedoms, and they sit alongside political freedoms, the freedoms we need to take part in the democratic process as genuine equals. So that first principle encompasses personal and political freedoms, and it's basically a justification for a broadly liberal democracy. Uh, and then Rawls has this second principle, his equality principle, which has really got two parts. The first is uh, what he calls fair equality of opportunity. That's the idea that everyone should have an equal chance to develop their talents and abilities in life. Uh, and I think a lot of liberal thinkers and philosophers and politicians too often stop at that point. They think that, you know, as long as everyone has a fair start in life, we don't need to worry about inequality. Rawls rejects that idea. He thinks that alongside caring about equality of opportunity, we also need to make sure that prosperity is widely shared in our society. And that, that brings us to the second of part of his equality principle, which in a way is the most innovative and radical aspect of his theory. Rawls called this the difference principle. And it's basically the idea that we should organize our economic system in a way, in such a way that those who are least well off in society are better off than they would be under any alternative system. So what that principle says is that, a, you know, a degree of inequality can be justified because uh, you know, higher pay for some people can provide incentives to work and study and innovate that can lead to prosperity. And that in turn can can benefit everyone. But crucially, those inequalities are only justified if that prosperity genuinely does benefit everyone. And I think Rawls is, is sort of clear sighted about the fact that there's nothing inherent to how markets operate that means that prosperity will be widely shared, let alone that it will benefit the least well off as much as possible. And that's really, that's the egalitarianism of Rawls's philosophy comes from that principle. And his uh, proposal, I suppose, to us is to, to, to think about reorganizing our economic institutions in a way that would genuinely yeah, it, it's uh, ironic markets uh, to benefit the least well off. Right. It's ironic, Daniel, that he wrote his book in the 70s before really the eruption of neoliberalism it was almost as if he imagined neoliberalism before it happened you're in the economics uh, department at, at the LSE mm -hmm. what would Rawls say differently if he was around today in terms of his theory of justice given that we are at the at the the dusk of of the neoliberal age some people mm. believe it's actually finished and the yeah. consequences of radical inequality and all the other consequences which you're more familiar with than I am yeah. How does the history of neoliberalism change Rawls's theory of justice? Or does it simply underline the arguments that he made back in the 1970s? So 
I think that I think of Rawls's theory as really an alternative to neoliberalism. And, and to me, that the, the sort of irony of Rawls's legacy is that just as he was developing a very inclusive, humane and egalitarian liberalism in the 1970s, and just as those ideas were coming to really dominate political philosophy in a way that is quite unlike any other thinker from the 20th century, real politics was moving in the opposite direction with a much harsher and more individualistic account of neoliberalism that drew inspiration from thinkers like Friedrich Hayek and Milton Friedman, and then was championed in, in politics by politicians like Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan. And, you know, my interpretation is that it's that that neoliberalism is really responsible for so many of the problems that we face today, from inequality and poverty to a, a failure to tackle the climate, pro, uh, climate and ecological emergency. And, and, and for me, I, part of the aim of my book, I suppose, is to, uh, to show people that whilst politics has moved in that direction, liberal philosophy has moved into another place. And actually within academic political philosophy, you'd be hard stretched to find a philosopher who would really defend the sorts of uh, ideas that underpin neoliberalism today. And I suppose I want to bring to people the knowledge that the leading edge of liberal political philosophy today is, uh, is a radically different way of thinking about society. It's humane and egalitarian and points to quite a different way of, of organizing our economy. And, but, you know, as you, as you, I think, have suggested, there is a degree of overlap between these two theories. And Rawls's difference principle, which we were just discussing, you know, like in a, there's a sort of superficial similarity, I think, to trickle-down economics and that both ways of thinking recognise that their that incentives can play, that incentives are important to how markets operate and that a degree of inequality can benefit everyone. But I think that's sort of where the similarity ends, that while trickle-down economics is happy for just a small amount of the benefits of prosperity to uh, just to find their way to those at the bottom, for Rawls almost reverses the priority there and says that rather than, so I think of trickle down economics really as maximizing the incomes of the top and trusting or assuming that some will find its way down to everyone else. Whereas for Rawls, our aim should be almost the opposite. The aim is to make sure that it's the least well off who benefit as much as possible. And I don't think anyone could describe economic policy over the last 30, 40 years as, as aiming in that direction. So I think what's what's attractive about Rawls in a sense is that it takes what's you know, what's economically valid and important about neoliberalism, it's recognition that that markets can generate prosperity and that prosperity can generate can benefit everyone. But, you know, really puts the benefit everyone bit right back at the heart of, of politics and says, D Daniel, the, yeah. in terms of the, the intellectual history of all this, mm -hmm. is is Rawls, do you think, a new chapter rejection of traditional Keynesian thinking? Or, is, or, or does it simply contain a, a, a twist on Keynesianism? That's oh, a good question. I think, personally, I find Keynesianism a, a difficult beast to pin down. Yeah, and I'm not entirely sure what I mean by it. I'm yeah. just throwing the term out. And, but we I all mean, know I've... what we kind of mean by it. The, yeah. the, the progressive, the, the New Deal thinking of the period between the, the 30s and the 70s. Yeah. So I think, yeah, I think if you think of Keynesianism as underpinning a broadly social democratic approach to politics, then I think Rawlsianism is providing a more, um, a sort of more solid philosophical underpinning for a broadly social democratic politics. I think it also 
pushes social democracy in some new directions. I think that Rawls's commitment to equality is stronger than is the case with many other social democrats. And I think another piece that I think is particularly interesting and exciting about Rawls's theory for me, and which I think has sometimes been overlooked in, in more mainstream social democratic politics, is an emphasis not just on the distribution of money, but on the importance of power and control in our economic sphere, so particularly the balance of power between workers and owners, and also the importance of dignity and self-respect. And I think that's, to me, that's part of what's very exciting about Rawls's ideas right now is that our, I think our discourse about inequality is very focused on the distribution of money. And that points towards a policy agenda that's all about redistribution, thinking that redistributing money can solve all of our problems. Whereas what Rawls points towards is a much richer conversation about inequality that recognizes the importance of power, control, dignity and self-respect. And that in turn, I think, leads us towards an agenda that takes um, questions about the organization of work, access to meaningful work much more seriously. And in my book, I argue that that uh, justifies uh, a quite radical rebalancing of power within workplaces. Um, so I, I look to Germany here in particular as an example, where uh, where in Germany, workers and owners share power on much more equal terms, partly through workers being represented on the boards of companies, and also through works councils, which are elected bodies, um, which or bodies which workers elect representatives onto. Uh, I, I, yeah, I mean, the German model is very attractive. But it's yeah. not as if all the Germans read John Rawls. Why do we need <laughs> Rawls for that? Why can't we just? Why can't you just argue? Well, the German model works better, or the Scandinavian model of respect yeah. in the workplace, higher taxes. What, what's the the Rawlsian element that adds uh, that extra bit of spice to to the German model of democracy in the workplace? Yeah, I think what's I think what Rawls adds to all of this is a framework for bringing together a whole load of policy ideas that might be good. So you know, I think we can look around the world to uh, to the German model of co-management or to trials with universal basic income around the world. Right, we've done a lot of shows on UBI. And, yeah, so I think, you know, I think what's, it's, it's easy-ish at the moment to point to lots and lots of policies around the world that might be attractive in their own right. And I think what's missing is a, is a, it's a coherent philosophy that can underpin all of those ideas and bring them together into something coherent. And I think that's very important politically. Uh, you know, and I think if we look back to the success of the rise of neoliberalism in the 70s and 80s, I think that in, to a significant extent that was underpinned by a sense that a neoliberal policy agenda was underpinned by a philosophy that was articulated by thinkers like Hayek and Milton Friedman. And I think that's what sort of centre-left and social democratic parties are struggling with today is to is to bring interesting and promising policy ideas together into a into something that feels like a coherent vision and you know I think it's that vision is important because you know what most people don't spend their time studying the details of of individual policies you know I've worked in think tanks and in government I love reading those kinds of reports but I recognize that most people don't I think what most people respond to is our narratives and stories stories about you know, where a society is and where it should be going. And I think it's that that we get from rules. We get, you know, I think those narratives are often moral narratives at their core. That's what rules provides us is a, is a kind of moral vision of what a fair society would look like. And then that vision provides 
um, a way of bringing together lots of policy ideas and making them feel... Right. I, I mean, it's obvious, Daniel, that, that you're arguing against conservatives, and I don't suppose Donald Trump or his people will be reading the book. Uh, your, your book comes with all sorts of uh, excellent blurbs from Zadie Smith to your friend David Miliband to uh, Piketty, um, mm -hmm. Stephen Fry, all the traditional heavyweights on the left. Who, within this debate amongst progressives, who are you arguing against? Because a lot of this just sounds self-evident, like apple cake to the left. Uh, <laughs> it's just, well, who would argue against all this stuff? Yeah. There has to be a debate amongst progressives. It sounds yeah. like you're putting together these rather sexy, exciting moral ideas but 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 trying to can um trying to mold them with with policy who, who's who, who's making mistakes on the left who who won't yeah. agree with your book yeah uh, amongst progressives what's who's it directed <laughs> against yeah no that's a great question so i think of the book as having two audiences so it's partly aimed at people on i suppose what you might think of as the socialist or democratic socialist left who I think are very, you know, might be sympathetic to some of the policy ideas in the book, but are very hostile to liberalism as a philosophical tradition. So I think one argument that I'm trying, one thing I'm trying to achieve is to say to people on the democratic socialist left, look, this, that liberalism is not what you think, that, that the liberal philosophical tradition actually has the resources to, um, you know, is, is an immense resource for thinking through what, democratic socialists can and could stand for and offers a language I think also that can appeal beyond people who think of themselves as socialists I think part of the political appeal of Rawls's philosophy is that unlike the socialist tradition which sometimes presents itself as tearing down the institutions that we have and replacing them with something totally different what we get from Rawls is an argument for I think a fairly radical policy agenda but which which frames itself as building on the best of our of liberal and democratic traditions and, and capitalism and capitalism. Yeah, I think so. And so I think that's so there's a challenge, I suppose, to some people on the left, which is firstly that the liberal tradition is an ally and not the enemy and, and offers important resources and that recognizing the importance of of, of a market economy and also of individual freedom should be right at the heart of a progressive politics. And I think that is a challenge to certain tendencies on the more authoritarian or anti-market parts of the left. So, so I think that's, that's one target is, is either authoritarians on the left or people on the left who reject liberalism. Then I think the book is also though aimed at people who are comfortable with maybe describing themselves as liberals, think of themselves as defenders of liberal democracy, but have failed to, but tend to sort of advocate a policy or political agenda that is more or less a defense of the status quo. And I think that's probably, that's a, fa a fair description of most people who describe themselves as liberals today in the political domain, tend to be more or less happy with the way that things are. Maybe they're worried about the crisis of liberal democracy. They recognize that a degree of change is necessary more or less to maintain stability but i think what in what i'm trying to say to that group is is that look if you look at the leading liberal philosopher of today if you take your liberalism seriously you would embrace an agenda that actually 
would change our society in some quite fundamental ways, particularly when it comes to how we organize our economy. So, you know, I think what's interesting about the book is on the one hand, I'm kind of hoping to please everyone. I'm hoping that the book will appeal both to social democratic socialists on the left and liberals in the center. My, that's, you know, the spirit of the book is trying to build bridges between those groups. But I, you know, I don't think instinctively that that both of those groups are already on board. So I guess that's the work that the book well, is Well, it's got some nice reviews on the left. I mean, the New Statesman likes it. I'm not sure how far on the left the New Statesman is. I'm, I'm curious, mm -hmm. you've talked about, um, you, 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 you've talked uh, on your Twitter page, you talked mm -hmm. about the book, uh, Transforming Capitalism. You've talked about that, but you also mm -hmm. said um, it can reinvigorate democracy. Mm -hmm. It always seems to me about rules is it's a bit dense and mm -hmm. I can't, imagine how John Rawls's theory of justice could actually reinvigorate democracy. It actually <laughs> seems like a, a damp towel on democracy, <laughs> transforming democracy into a, a, a dense seminar. What is it about your book and your interpretation of Rawls that could reinvigorate democracy? <laughs> yes, let me come in and defend Rawls here. So I think, you know, I, I, I don't think that uh, people, you know, I'm not expecting politicians to be carrying around their copies of Theory of Justice or or <laughs> quoting the original position thought well, experiment. They'll be carrying your book around, uh, Daniel, hope... because you've made uh, you've made rules into uh, accessible. Yeah, and that, I mean that's what I think. That's the you know I I think rules provides us with the raw material for a genuinely inspiring political vision. And I, so I think one sense in which I hope Rawls's ideas can can reinvigorate democracy is by providing a constructive, hopeful and optimistic vision of what a better society could look like that I think is really missing from our political debate. So I think that that's one part of it. But I also, when I say reinvigorate democracy, I also mean that Rawls's ideas point us towards ways of reforming our political system that would make the actual experience of democracy much uh, more more equal and, you know, that would improve people's experience of democracy. So, you know, one of the things I talk about in the book is, I think, you know, the place that I would start when it comes to reforming our political process is getting money out of politics. And that's a huge problem in both. Well, we don't America. need John Rawls. I mean, everyone from even conservatives would probably agree on that one, don't they, Daniel? Well, I, you know, I suppose... Well, I'm not sure. I think in a, you know, in a, well, the in, traditional left, the mainstream left. I mean, that's especially mm -hmm. in America. I mean, you're mostly the, the book will come out next year in the US. But I mean, that's yeah. Well, I think, a, I think there is a, a I think that many that liberal arguments have been used to block attempts to get money out of politics. And the American Supreme Court has often has has thrown out attempts by Congress to regulate campaign donations on the basis that restricting those donations is basically undermines free speech and that free speech should take priority over almost all of our other basic freedoms. So I think, you know, at a, at a philosophical level, what we get from rules is a recognition that, yes, free speech is a truly fundamental basic freedom, but it sits along other important basic freedoms, including a commitment to meaningful political equality. And that rather than thinking that one freedom always dominates another, which I think is the philosophy that underpins recent Supreme Court rulings, Rawls provides us with a different but still liberal way of thinking, which recognizes that 
that we have to find a balance between these two things and that I think it's impossible to think that the American system at the moment is striking anywhere near a balance that that would allow democracy to function properly. So, you know, I think we, we partly get from Rawls a philosophical or intellectual rebuttal of some of the ideas that have underpinned the current role of money in politics. And then I suppose my contribution is to, to move beyond Rawls's abstract principles and follow it through to practical proposals that would actually achieve what he is talking about. And so in the book, I talk about the democracy voucher system as a good alternative to private financing for political parties. So that's the idea that every we would limit private donations to a very low level and replace them with a system where every citizen is given a certain amount of money per year, say 50 pounds or $50, they can give to the party of their choice. And that would, you know, that would completely transform the incentives of our political system. It would mean that rather than having to go cap in hand to a small and unrepresentative donor class, politicians would have to appeal to citizens in a much more equal way. And, you know, and that's a system that actually exists right now in Seattle. Um, so since 2017, Seattle adopted um, a system like that in a referendum, and it's they've had three election cycles under that system. It's worked incredibly well. And so I guess, you know, the purpose of my book is partly to bring Rawls's philosophical arguments to bear on questions like what we were just discussing about free speech versus political equality, but then to combine them with uh, with practical policy ideas. And that's, I suppose that's what's distinctive about the book is to bring these two things together. I think often you get books that are just a sort of shopping list of policy ideas, but not grounded in a broader philosophy. Or you get philosophical books that have a very, you know, a coherent account of values and ideas, but fail to match them up with policy. And I guess what's distinctive, I hope, about my book, Free and Equal, is the synthesis of those two things. Finally, uh I wonder whether, in terms of reinvigorating democracy, you've talked about democracy in the workplace, whether mm. you mentioned citizens. Citizen assemblies seem to be mm. uh, a particularly interesting example, especially since they're built on the, uh, the, the lottery system of antiquity, which is, yeah. in an odd way, Rawlsian. That, uh, I, I wonder whether reinvigorating democracy in the way you're describing mm -hmm. in uh, free and equal would fit very comfortably with citizen assemblies as a way of really changing the, the, the institutions of, uh, of, uh, of representative democracy. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. And actually in my, in the chapter on democracy in the book, I sort of I start with getting money out of politics and then move on to trying to incorporate ways of, of engaging citizens more directly in democratic decision making. And right at the heart of that is making the case for a much greater role for citizens assemblies where the members are selected at, at random from the population. And as you say, that's a democratic idea with an incredibly long pedigree going back to ancient Athens. And it fits very well with Rawls's principle of political equality, which is really the principle that underpins his ideas about democracy. Um, you know, I think there's some debate about, some people have argued that that system should replace elections. I don't think that's the right way to go. I, the way I think is that what we need is a, is almost a mixed, you could think of as a mixed democracy in the same way that we talk about a mixed economy that, that combines both public and private ownership. I think a mixed, a mixed democracy that combines elected elections and representative democracy with forms of direct participation is much more likely to get us towards 
genuine political equality. And it would remind people of, of, of luck and of fate, which yeah. is, I think, essential if, if rules is to be more universally accepted. Most mm -hmm. people will say, well, you know, I made my own fate, especially in the United States. But with these mm -hmm. sorts of initiatives, mm. lottery systems of one kind or another, the same should probably be true for universities. I know in, in some European countries, uh, university places are determined by lottery. Yeah, which I think is an interesting proposal. I mean, I suppose my sense is that for each institution, you have to think about what your rationale is for, for allocating places. And I think in our political system, equality is the most important principle. And so selection by lottery has a very natural appeal. I think with university places, the aim may be slightly different, that um, you, know, you might want to select on merit or ability uh, when it comes to universities, and so a different process might be necessary. Um, but you know, I think it. Uh, yeah, I think that allocating um, for, for when when educational institutions are oversubscribed, I think using lotteries can be a very uh, can be a very helpful thing for everyone who's sort of who's able to benefit from that from that education.